This is Motley Fool Money. G'day, fools. It's me here, Scott Phillips. I am the host, as you know, of this Motley Fool Money podcast. But I've got some interesting and exciting news. We're launching a brand new podcast. It's called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips, and I'm pretty sure you'll like it. We're having conversations like the ones we've had before with some of the nation's leading economists, business thinkers, even a politician or two. You might remember we spoke to Warren Hogan and John Hewson last year. Well, we're starting it as its very own podcast. As I said, it's called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips, and we thought seeing you liked the last ones you'll like this one too. So we've decided to put the very first interview, the very first episode of The Good Oil into this podcast feed to give you a little taster. Have a listen and then at the end, make sure you do me a favour and subscribe to The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. It'll make the boss happy. It'll keep the good people at Listener happy as well if you wouldn't mind. So do me a favour, have a listen, enjoy and then subscribe. I can call myself this the Chardonnay Socialist or something like that. You can do things to give people a job. You can do things to uh, keep businesses going, to keep them employing and investing. And to me, at the end of the day, that's what economics is all about. Okay, we all want to make money in financial markets and you know all these sorts of things. But if you get the economy right, the markets will probably look after themselves. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer here in Australia and a successful long-term investor. Now, you can't be a decent investor, you can't be a good investor without really understanding the world of economics and finance, knowing how businesses run, knowing what makes things tick. Now, in the Good Oil podcast, we're going to bring all of that experience, all of that knowledge to bear and interview some of the best and brightest people right across business, finance and economics. We're going to break it all down for you, explain how it works, how it's being built, who's successful and why. In short, we're going to try and leave you educated, informed and entertained as we get the good oil together. Our first guest is well-known economist Stephen Kukoulos. Now, you'll know Stephen from around the traps. He's been a chief economist. He's been an advisor to a prime minister, and he now runs his own economics firm. He's a really quotable, really entertaining guy. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. In this chat, Stephen tells me why he thinks the economy is poised to bounce back strongly once we have COVID under control. He also talks about why he doesn't think Australia needs to be a manufacturing nation. And we also chat, well, let's just say disagree, about a universal basic income. I'm a fan. He's not so much, but you'll have to listen to hear more about why he thinks that's the case. Without further ado, here's the good oil from Stephen Kukoulos. So let's let's before we get into the into the current stuff, let's take us back. You you went to ANU, you study economics, and you end up at Treasury, during which time you rise to pretty high ranks, then leave to become, I think it was chief economist or economist at Citibank. That's Tell true. us the Treasury story first, mate. I, I'm I'm just curious. I've never been inside Treasury. Yeah. You've been there twice. Uh, tell us the Treasury kind of experience. Look, it was really interesting. I guess I've uh, that background, and I'm very flattered that you, that you mentioned it. But look, I've been very lucky in my career. I I've been the luckiest person around, and while there's been ebbs and flows and ups and downs and sackings and hirings and all these other things, <laughs> I've still been pretty lucky in my view. And look, Treasury was really interesting. You know, here I was, I studied economics at ANU, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, sort of wondering, what the hell is all this economics about? What does it mean? How can I apply those graphs that I learned in Echo 1, 2 and 3 and in statistics and all this sort of stuff to the real world? And Treasury threw you in at the deep end. And while 
Look, I, I was there in the late 80s and the very early 1990s recession, so I was there when that... It's time to be there, yeah. Yeah, so it was a great time, and that was when Keating was um, treasurer. Paul Keating was a vibrant man, and even though I was at the sort of lower rungs of the ladder, so to speak, <laughs> you know, you got to see things. You were uh, the number cruncher, the proofreader, the... Yeah, the junior person who did the initial work on all these sort of things and the senior people took it up. But it was a time when there was huge amounts of economic reform, you're involved in public policy issues, you're discussing the budget. And in those days to remember that Treasury had a much, much more, what do we call it, influential role with the Reserve Bank, (laughs) let's say. So you actually got to see a fair bit on monetary policy. So it was a vibrant time. We had an economic boom. We had the Banana Republic. We had the recession we had to have, and uh, it was a great time. There you go, mate. It's, uh, the, it, it dates us both, but uh, they, they were heady times. I don't know that we've had a time of reform quite like it since. I was uh, a little bit behind you, but not too far, and it was certainly a, a heck of a 10 or 15 years, the kind of 83 to 96, maybe even to 2000 if you include the GST. Those for 15 to 17 years, a lot went on that probably despite the fact that maybe we're still feeling repercussions now or maybe we're not, maybe there's not enough reform, but it, it was a, a heck of a time. I, I know your fellow economist Tim Harcourt talks about you know meeting Bob Hawke in the same kinds of circumstances and having yes. that same kind of feeling of being around the big things that were happening, the big decisions that were being made. Did, did that have an influence on you as an economist, as an observer? Uh, you know, were you, were you too young? I'm curious to how it kind of formed what happened next. Look, I think it did because it showed you how things can get done. And this is where in this last few years when, as you said, I've been a little bit vocal. Now, <laughs> I work for myself and um, I don't have a <laughs> boss can, exactly. can kick me in the pants. Um, so I can sort of say what I think to some extent, obviously, but it showed that things can be done. So that when things go bad or things need reforming, you can do it. You need the political will to do it. And as you said, that period up till... I guess even the first two-thirds of the Howard government, you know, with the GST reforms, the move to budget balance, setting up the future fund, you know, there's a whole range of reforms that they implemented on top of the Hawke-Keating stuff of the decade before that. That You think, well, yeah, a lot of those things were, were really good. Look, they weren't perfect, but they were really good. And then you sit here during... You know, the COVID crisis, you sit here during, you know, zero interest rates, the RBA missing its inflation target for six or seven years now, I think it is. And you go, come on, you, can, you don't just sit there and have to cop it. You know, you can, you can be bolder with your policy yeah, right. decisions. You can do more because at the end of the day, one of the things that I also learned, and this is probably why I'm the, um, what do we call, I can call myself this, the Chardonnay Socialist or something like that. You can do things to give people a job. You can do things to... Uh, keep businesses going, to keep them employing and investing. Mm -hmm. And to me, at the end of the day, that's what economics is all about. Okay, we all want to make money in financial markets and, you know, all these sorts of things. But if you get the economy Mm -hmm. right, the markets will probably look after themselves. I'm I'm actually of a similar thought to you in that in that context. You know, for all of the conversations that I have regularly, and like obviously I'm in stocks rather than broader economics, but the two aren't that far apart. And people will talk about the settings of the economy, or even things like you know tax rates and stuff, as if today's tax rate matters, and it does to some degree, but. You know, for, for businesses, long-term value creation comes from long-term economic success. And, uh, you know, policy aside, whichever side of the fence you're on, whatever it is, you should be hoping first and foremost for a healthy long-term 
you know, economy rather than what you can yep. get right now. Because while today's dollars matter a bit, it's no point making a dollar today if you're going to lose it tomorrow. If you can set up the economy <laughs> yeah. for the right 5, 10, 15, 20-year you know, cycle or maybe not even cycle, just, just journey, that's worth a lot more to you economically, financially, no matter how selfish or otherwise you want to be, than actually saying, let's worry about today, today, and, you know, t- tomorrow we'll all, be, we'll all be dead type stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's a really important uh, – thing to think about because, of course, we can all get the short-term sugar hit from, you know, making a dollar. Well, that's – I leave that to uh, Randwick on a Saturday for the horse racing if you want to <laughs> put 10 bucks and make a bit of money. That, that's great. That's great. But, you know, long-term economic management, long-term investing is all about, well, long-term. You know, you expect to get rich slowly sort of approach to, to uh, investing and get exactly. the economy yeah. growing because, again, at the end of the day, the best thing that you can do – I think, as an economic policy maker, and again, it's not Labor, Liberal, Liberal, Labor, whatever. The best thing you can do is get the framework right mm, where mm, businesses are investing, they're making money, they're hiring lots of people, they're spending a fair bit of money on CapEx, so they're investing in and having a go and you know, trying to innovate and trying to think about how mm. they can make money because if they succeed then they're going to employ an awful lot of people. The economy will be performing well. And you just have to look at sort of some of these more academic studies on uh, measures of national innovation and those sorts of things and economic success. And, of course, the correlation is very, very strong. The more economies have uh, uh, businesses with an entrepreneurial flair, the better off they do. Make sure you were you were obviously part of the part of Treasury during the recession we had to have, and then you were a chief global strategist during the GFC. You, you've kind of you've you've been at the right place at I won't have said the right time, maybe the wrong times. I'm not sure, uh, but maybe take us. You know, we've just finished talk about what the economy can do, and I I was mindful that I'll oh, the quick tangent. I think we actually got got out of the COVID recession better than we otherwise might have had we not had the GFC is my my observation that we learned austerity didn't work and we learned that sometimes adding more support than you otherwise might prefer, particularly depending on your ideology, can work. So I have a, I have a suspicion we managed to get out of this one better than we might have had we not had the GFC. But before we get to that, just take us back to that, mate. You were oh. obviously chief global yeah. strategist when during the biggest, you know, economic palaver since the global depression it was a, it's a hell of a thing yeah it was and that was when i was lucky enough to be um with td in london and uh, i've mm. had, had a few years there and we were uh, sort of managing the whole research thing which was a heap of fun but our uh, office mm. in uh, finsbury square in in london uh was overlooking a northern rock building society branch oh, gee. and um the, one of the mornings there, we knew things were sort of going a bit pear-shaped. You know, it was early days. No one really knew what was happening. But a couple <laughs> of the um, FX traders, oh, my God, look out the window. There's this huge queue. And uh, oh, we wow. all rushed up to the window. And, and there was a, a, a line, I don't know, a couple of hundred metres at least, of people queuing up to take their money out of the Northern Rock Building Society, which was basically bankrupt. And there was a run on the banks, so to speak. And so... What on earth are we dealing with? And, of course, it was something that, you know, was only in textbooks from the Great Depression or, yeah, or right. something like that. And we sort of were all into these, well, meetings, what are we going to do, how are we going to cope with it? And, of course, you know, thankfully, you know, Gordon Brown, who was the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, guaranteed bank deposits and all this sort of stuff. But that was a real catalyst on how on earth you tackle 
what is a banking and financial crisis and how that overlaid itself back onto the economy because, of course, we did have a recession, a global recession. Australia did well to avoid that. But, you know, there was um, a pretty nasty time. Markets tanked. People lost a lot of money. There was no... Banks didn't trade with each other. They were too scared of the counterparty risk because they weren't sure whether you were going to be the one who defaulted on me when I, when I did that transaction with you. So we, we had an almighty, I guess, trial on what can go wrong because everything went wrong. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, policymakers around the world threw everything at it and we sort of got out of it relatively unscathed. Bring us, bring us forward now, well, 13 or 14 years, the question of moral hazard, the question of, I mean, the banks kind of, bank shareholders escaped almost entirely unscathed in Australia, not so in the US and UK where banks were quasi-nationalised in a lot of cases. Relatively unscathed here, and again, I've had some people rumbling after the Commonwealth Bank's earnings, um, uh, you know, in early August, saying, "Look, the bank made this fantastic amount of money to some degree, backstopped by the taxpayer, because without the, you know, without the money being thrown at the economy, they couldn't have made as much money. House prices may well have collapsed, things may well have gone wrong, and that's, you know, that's a different question. But banks seem to be." Almost untouchable economically. Yeah. Curious as to your thoughts just on on the role. You know, no no banker goes to jail. All that kind of stuff from the GFC. On one level, we say, well, should they have? You know, did they get away with it? Maybe. On the other hand, you want to be careful what we wish for because if banks had collapsed, then the rest of the economy goes to hell for five or ten years. Is there are there lessons from that we we should have learned or didn't learn? Yeah, I, I'm a bit of a sympathizer for the banks. Um, they are such an important cog in making the economy work from uh, the business sector to the household sector to you know, everybody in between. I don't know of anybody who doesn't have a bank account. You know, yeah. How many people are there in Australia? Everyone's got a bank account, you know, maybe babies aside, but you know, every adult's got a bank account. So they're, an import- they're, they're just such a critical part of the economy. Now that's, I think, the important point to start with it, but then it's how you regulate them. It's how right. the tax treatment is... Um, sheeted out to them and these sorts of things. And and that's a separate question because, again, I want the banks to be profitable. I want them to lend wisely. Uh, I want them to be, you know, the, the grease that makes the economy tick over to turn around, the cogs keep turning around and around and around because, as right. I think you alluded to, when they don't, you get a, a nasty economic outcome. But that said, obviously, you know, gosh, what we've seen in this last little while with the term funding facilities and, uh, you know, incredibly stimulatory monetary policy and the like, if they've, as we're just seeing in recent times, yeah, the profits are fabulous. And um, maybe there's something there that should be about a bit of clawback when when conditions are so good. And that's where I think when the coalition had the, um, the banking tax, <laughs> they were trying to get a little bit of that um, super profit back. And gosh, dare I say it, with the... Um, our poor performance on the mining super profits tax of, <laughs> gosh, 15-odd years ago, 12 years ago, that, yeah, maybe we need a super profits tax for the banks. I don't know. Just put it out there. I, haven't, I confess I haven't thought it through that much. Yeah, just, you know, the old, the old socialise the losses, privatise the profits thing. You know, when the banks get to make money in the good times and the government or, and the taxpayer, frankly, rack up the debt, it, there's, a, there's a reasonable question. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-capitalism, as you well know, and our listeners certainly know, so I'm not arguing for much more than that, other than there is a genuine question of when, when times are good, the banks do well, when times are bad, seems the banks do well. And maybe that's fine and maybe <laughs> yeah. that's okay, but yeah. there, there, yeah. Is, there is something the to that. Are, Again, like you said, the banks are important. And, uh, yeah, goodness. Yes, uh, yes. You, you want them to keep functioning. You don't want to sort of tax them out of existence either or to tax them or to what's a, you know, have, have the rules and regulations so they stop lending. That's a disaster as well. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah. Mate, let, let's let's finish off the uh, the bit of the Cooks tour through your background. Um, before founding Market Economics, you were Chief Economic Advisor to PM Julia Gillard. Yes. Um, to some degree, I would say it completes the circle because you've gone back into to private practice after that. But, you know, Treasury, then out into industry, then back to Treasury for a little bit of time before joining PM Gillard's office. How, how was that experience? Obviously, in a very, very different role. But um, do the wheels of government turn the way you expected was the experience? The way you expected? <laughs> just, just, maybe just take us behind no, the curtain a little bit. Without giving away anything you're not allowed to, of course. I, I was flattered to be offered the role. I thought, well, what the hell? I was getting to that stage of my career. I'll, I'll give it a go. And um, and being here in Canberra for a whole lot of personal reasons, um, I thought, well, look, it's not every day you get a chance to do that sort of job. So I so I took it and took it enthusiastically. Um, it was it was a funny role um, in a in a way that in the Prime Minister's office, so different to the Treasurer's office in a way because the Treasurer's office and the Minister for Finance did a lot of the nitty-gritty policy and everything that was sort of economics then came to the Prime Minister's office and, oh, Stephen, you're the bloke who knows a bit about the economy, we'll put this through to you sort of thing. So I I ended up doing a range of things, some which I thoroughly enjoyed. A couple, and I'm happy to mention them, um, is things like anti-dumping laws, you know, the, the rules... Because it's sort of economic and because the minister, I can't remember who it was now, to be honest, you know, because it's an economic issue. Oh, Stephen, can you look at this 50-page cabinet submission? Prepare a briefing for the Prime Minister on the um, aluminium window frames that China's allegedly dumping into the Australian economy. I thought, holy smokes, that's not for me. But that, 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 I'm, I'm picking the things that I didn't like. But, you know, gosh, it was an exciting job. You got to go on the Prime Minister's plane to um, the G20 meeting in Seoul and, you know, sitting just 10 feet away from Barack Obama and these sort of things. It was, it was pretty exciting and uh, hard work, uh, but it, it was not sustainable for me. So um, hence I left after not a huge amount of time there. Fair enough, mate. That makes sense. That makes sense. Mate, let, let's, let's turn it into the economy because uh, that's kind of what we're here to do in, in, in large part. Although it's important to set the, set the scene and... and as always, I, I, my personal view is that you know you need a very, very solid understanding of economic history to really make sense of what's going on now. The same is true with market history, by the way. I think they, again, you know, the, the markets and the economy don't always go in the same direction or to the same degree, but knowing a bit of the history of both is, is pretty important. Let, let's start with the 40,000-foot question. Let's get back on the Prime Minister's plane, borrow it for a little while and just uh, circle, above, circle above the country. Um, we're recording this in mid-August 2021, being a podcast. You could be listening to it whenever, and by then we'll know the answers to a lot of this stuff. We're in the middle of a lockdown that's hit half of the country, 60% of the population, something like that right now. We know the current quarter is almost certainly going to be a, a negative growth quarter, like they used to call it a contraction, now it's called negative growth. National economic output is going to be down. Here's the question, the $64 question, $64 billion question. How much trouble are we in, mate? In answering that, I'll start where we were about six to eight weeks ago, and that is through to the middle of June, the economy was on fire. We had unemployment at 4.9%, the lowest it had been in over a decade. Things like retail sales were strong. The housing market we know was was really buoyant, to, to, to use a, an understatement possibly. And the RBA had told us that they were going to keep the official cash rate at 0.1% for the next couple of years. So monetary policy was stimulatory, commodity prices were strong, you know, iron ore well above 200 US dollars a tonne. Yeah, things were looking really, really positive. Then along came uh, the COVID lockdowns and, you know, here we are, middle of August and, yeah, as you as you touched on, you know, 
over half the economy is sort of in lockdown and um, it's clearly going to have a big negative effect. You know, we, we have a bit of a, <laughs> unfortunately, we know what sort of effect lockdowns have. In 2020, when the whole country was locked down, GDP in the June quarter of 2020 was minus 7%. This is a little bit different um, but the back of the envelope calculations at this stage seem to have the fall in GDP about 3%. That's a big fall in, in anyone's language. So a big fall. The unemployment rate will probably spike up for the next few months. Um, and then, of course, it all depends on how rapidly we're vaccinated and then how quickly we reopen up. But the structure of the economy is still in pretty good shape. The RBA is not going to hike rates anytime soon. We still have enough momentum in the business sector, enough optimism, and interestingly, enough pent-up demand from really high levels of consumer savings and, of course, borrowing power, as we've mentioned several times, or I've mentioned, uh, these low interest rates that say to me that when we get, say, to the first quarter of 2022, let's just you know, give it a few months for the vaccination take-up for the end of the lockdowns to sort of materialise. So December quarter could also be a little bit bit of a soggy one for the economy. But once we get into the new year, the first half of 2022 should see a bit of a pick-up, a bit of a catch-up, if you like, to the lost output from the current downturn. And that I think will more or less resume that strong growth phase, aided and abetted by, um, you know, pretty easy policy. And the fact that the Aussie dollar is now well below 75 cents, as we speak, and even though commodity prices are off the boil, they're still pretty high. Um, uh, we're, we're probably going to be doing really well when 2022 comes along. Nice. I, I love that optimism. Thank you. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature myself, and I've yeah. been less optimistic than usual the last few weeks, so I'm happy you've restored my, my confidence. You mentioned December quarter being a bit soggy. Now, for those who don't follow the economics, that's the October, November, and December months of 2021. If that's too soggy, that's a negative number. That's officially a recession the way we choose to measure it here in Australia. I've long thought, and this is going back to politics for a second, that the Rudd Swan cash splash of 08 9, that effectively kept us out of recession. I think that the, the, we had one negative quarter and the second was a growth of 0.1% or something from memory. Correct. Something the, like keeping that, the yes. R word off the front page of the paper probably saved us a year's worth of pain because once that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, it's hard to get out. If we do have a negative quarter coming up and we do end up with that you know, technical capital R recession, does that make the journey harder just because of the way people start to think about things? These animal spirits, it's consumer and business confidence that get impacted. I think that's what you're alluding to. And, and they are really important, you know. Uh, it does matter how people feel, whether they dip into their savings and dip into their borrowing capacity to sort of uh, expand the economy. Now, I'm, I'm based in Canberra, so don't hold that against me, but um, I'm based in Canberra. But And I talk to people of a different political colours, if you like. I'm hearing that uh, Treasurer Frydenberg, who's not a silly man. In fact, on the contrary, he's a pretty shrewd sort of player. He knows these risks. He's, a, he's well aware of what we're talking about in two consecutive quarters. He knows the September quarter is going to be a big negative. And he's also hearing that the last quarter, the October, November, December months, could also be weak. I'm hearing that there's chatter that he may offer a little bit of a stimulus measure which takes effect on the 1st of October. So a little bit, it's sort of like, um, and right. it, it sounds a bit cynical in a way, but it's also, you know, it's good economics also that there might just be this little bit of a payment to pensioners. There might be a little bit of a one-off increase to people on um, JobSeeker. There may be a little bit of a relief for 
uh, wage and salary earners, an extra five hundred bucks in your uh, in your pay packet for uh, yeah to to help the economy cover you know, COVID, a reward for getting vaccinated if you like, even though that's a bit got a political taint to it at the minute. But so and if that money came in during October, then of course you know we consumers we might not spend all of it, but we'd spend a fair whack of it if you just got a few hundred bucks for no uh, no real reason in your bank account, and particularly pensioners who are more cash constrained than others. They'll spend it and that will probably avoid that second quarter of negative GDP. Nice, that makes sense. Uh, ironically, after uh, the, the the very blatant and, and strident criticism of the of the cash splash in uh, in 08 9, the, the, the right thing at the time, the right thing now, uh, as you say, it's, it's very hard to separate politics and economics, but it is it, it would be smart because not only, I mean, yes, it would be good for the, for the Treasurer and, and the government, but it'd be good for the economy and good for the rest of us because it means economic growth is good. It is. It's money. It's money in the economy. Yeah, the money in people's pockets. It's amazing. People do spend it. You know, and that's <laughs> spending. It's good for retail. It's good for construction. It's good for you know serv- the services industry. And while we might not be well, this is the other thing that's been helping the economy. The fact that we can't travel overseas means that we're travel well. When borders allow us, we can travel domestically. So the domestic tourism industry, uh, instead of jumping on a plane and going to Bali, we're getting in the car and driving to Ballina or somewhere. So, you know, we're, we're holidaying locally. And I think the tourism industry, well, when we're allowed to with these lockdowns, is sort of not quite as bad as it might have been. And, in fact, rural and regional parts of the country, again, have done actually pretty well in this, in this lockdown period. Yeah, I think you're right. I was surprised when Treasurer Frydenberg said a few months ago, and I hadn't, I could have got this information, I just had never seen it before, that Australians spend more when we travel overseas than incoming tourists spend here. And so almost by definition, while we won't all spend the same dollars, you know, regardless, it, it actually was a net positive in terms of the, 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 you know, the available cash actually goes up if we stay at home and we don't allow incoming arrivals. Can I just say one other thing too? This is sort of a link to that. Okay, just full disclosure here. I've got a shares in a couple of race horses <laughs> and my <laughs> mates there um, in the syndication business, they're saying that people have been coming to them this last year. Their business is doing very, very well. They're saying pe- people are coming to say, oh, I would have spent you know, 20, 30 grand, you know, taking the family over to the US or way over to Europe for the for the holidays, whatever. Not spending that money now and I'm doing okay. I've kept my job in this downturn. My mortgage repayments have come right down. <laughs> Those rates have been cut. I've always had this midlife crisis of buying a share in a racehorse. And so their business is doing really well, you know. So, um, yeah, oh, people wow, still okay. want to spend some money and maybe racehorses isn't the way that the economy is going to expand, but it's just illustrative of what's happening in, in other parts, things like the, the second-hand car market. People are buying cars. They're doing things and they're, you know, they're saving some of the money that they would have otherwise spent on their overseas holidays, but they're spending a bit of it too. Mm, nice, mate. Um, so I guess let, let let me take you. Let me put you back in the PM's office, uh, for better or worse. I'm not. I'm not sure that uh, Prime Minister Morrison is going to call you anytime soon. But assuming he did, if you were to, if you were to jump in the job for a week, and they said, look, what are the what are the two or three big economic issues that need fixing? If you're going to set economic policy, if you're if this is your legacy, Stephen, as a, as a public policy guru and wonk and and as a, an economist of note. If you said, look, you've got you've got a week, you can fix a couple of things. What are the what are the couple of things you're going to kind of put your your heft behind and say, I want these things to change, and here's what I need. I think we need to do. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things that I'd look at. One is relating to the efficiency of the tax system. Everybody talks tax and these sorts of things, but um, if, if if I had no political baggage, and this actually goes contrary to some other beliefs I have, you'd hike the GST to twenty percent, let's say. You'd broaden the base. You'd slash income tax rates, you'd boost the pension 
and you'd have a much more efficient tax system and you compensate the people who lose out because there will be people who lose out. So you could do that sort of thing on the first instance uh, and you'd have a real reduction in, in uh, income tax scales. Bit controversial, hard to sell. But, you know, people would pay a bit more for their bread and milk. That's that's one of the consequences, of course. But the revenue you collect would well and truly compensate people who do that. And it does cover the black economy too, which is still somewhere there. I've spent a lot of money on skills education and training. You know, we're seeing this right now with the international borders closed and the visas for foreign workers not being there. There's a skill shortage, but we've still got 750,000 people unemployed, another million underemployed. So it's saying to me that those people do not have the skills that we need. So what went wrong with our education and training system to allow those people through the cracks? So I'd say, look, let's just ramp up the money we spend on both our kids, young people at school and uni and TAFE and trades areas, but also middle-aged workers who might be being left behind with this technological explosion that's still going to happen forever. Retrain a 40-year-old man and woman to sort of be attached to the labour market. The other one's housing. And while I'm, you know, I, I'm house prices going up is more good than bad to me, um, I can still see that there's a big issue there. So I would Again, maybe through this national cabinet process with the six states and two territory governments, say to them, come on, people, you know, we, we've got a problem here. Uh, we need to build a lot more houses, a lot more social housing. Relax your land and um, planning permits. Allow for buildings to be built in areas where people want to live. We don't necessarily want the sprawl to go out, you know, 50 k's from the centre of Sydney because no one wants to live there. They want to live closer buy. So you'd sort of say, do something on housing and really ramp up the supply of housing because that's the way to address the fact that, you know, affordability might be a little bit stretched at the moment. There are a few things I think about anyway. Nice, mate. Love those. Um, One question on each then. Hiking the GST, dropping tax rates, you might get a job in the Liberal Party. You're not a noted conservative, generally speaking. Some people might say, Stephen, that's not very progressive of you. Look, uh, I think your question's a good one because the GST, yes, there is an element of uh, lack of progressivity. It's regressive, in other words, uh, because, you know, everybody pays the same for a loaf of... same GST on a loaf of bread, whether you're a billionaire or you're on the pension. Uh, and yes, but that's where you have the compensation. The revenue you collect would be would be stunning because it would allow you to really ramp up the pension, ramp up job seeker payments, and will in, in fact increase the tax free threshold to something like you know, some of the back of the envelope calculations. So like forty thousand a year, you can earn forty grand a year before you start paying any income tax. So you can juggle the tax system. It's because not just looking at the GST in isolation. It is the catalyst to allow those other tax scales and and payments to be funded. It allows you to use money to fund health and education, that education reform. Where's the money coming from sort of question? You can say, well, hang on, uh, some of that GST is going to be collected there. And also there is this issue that almost by definition, if you're a high income earner, you've got more money and you tend to spend more. So therefore at 20%, you'll be paying more tax than if you're on a low income. But again, that that... Uh, regressive nature of the GST is compensated by making the income tax structure even more progressive. So you actually have a net increase in progressivity in the tax system. It's not just in isolation. I should have clarified (laughs) that or emphasised that a little bit more. Because because you look at the tax system now of 45,000 to 200,000, you're paying the same, what is it, 32.5 cents in the dollar? That's going to be in, in, um, in play soon. That ain't a good idea. I don't like that tax structure at all. 
Let, let's go to your skills question. I, again, just be devil's advocate, mate. Um, some would say those workers we're missing out on right now, we're going to fill the bottom end rather than the top end of the skills spectrum. And it may well be that we're simply not paying enough to people of a lower skill level to get them to do the jobs that Australians don't want to do, can't do, or in the wrong places to do that foreigners tend to do. And we can always, we can throw the usual um, stereotypical ones. I won't because there is not it's not just those, but we all know the sort of jobs that we're, we're talking about here. Um, are we genuinely, I mean, if everyone's university educated, someone's still got to clean the floor, someone's still got to you know, collect <laughs> yeah. the garbage. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there a genuine skills gap or is there a is there a pay gap? Is there a mismatch between what we want, what we're prepared to pay? Perfect question. That's, that's exactly, you hit the nail on the head too, because again, there is this skills issue that's in some parts of the economy. And again, it's engineers and IT gurus and even some healthcare and healthcare professionals, you know, where, we, where we've got a huge demand for labour at the moment that's not necessarily being satisfied domestically. And so, yes, I would also pay those lower paid workers a decent wage because then, again, price signals work. That's one thing in economics that I've, I've learned over all these decades. <laughs> and we'll use the fruit picker example because that's one that's got a lot of media in the last couple of years. That, oh, no, it's picking my fruit. Bring back the backpackers. Yeah, the bring backpackers, back. are not, they're not coming to Australia, so I'm not paying them that you know, hideous wage, this horribly low wage to pick my strawberries and my apples and my, and my bananas. Well, if you paid them enough... I'd pick your fruit <laughs> if, you, if the pay levels were high <laughs> enough. I'd give up my day job and I'd pick the fruit. So you can fix market solutions. This is getting back to my earlier point that markets can fix so many things in economics. If you paid someone, I don't know, I'll make this number up, $50 an hour to pick fruit, I reckon you'd be inundated with people applying it's for all the right. job. Yeah, you pay them yeah. 10 bucks and make them sleep in an old uh, shipping container, uh, it's not such a desirable job. So... Pay can fix that shortage of labour as well. Mate, I'm going to I'm going to take you to another question there. I was going to ask you about trade industry policy and all that kind of stuff later, but I'll I'll throw it in now because the the flip side of that one again is I'm just making an excuse to ask you a second question about about the skills thing and the and the pay thing. To some degree, if we were to pay strawberry pickers fifty bucks an hour, we'd end up with an influx of strawberries from wherever there are strawberries around the world. I must confess, my strawberry market knowledge isn't great, <laughs> um, but let's assume there's, there's plenty of strawberries being picked in. I don't know. Brunei, just for the fun of it, um, you know, wherever there are strawberries being picked, you know, it is it is a global commodity. There is some reality around the whether it's simply just the arbitrage of labour costs, which we know globalisation is having its impact on, whether it's trade support industry tariffs from elsewhere, subsidies, you know, at some point, I guess the farmers are saying, well, hang on, you know, you can get California oranges for a couple of cents more than Australian oranges. If you put my wages up, that all of a sudden the market gets flooded with California oranges. Is, is, is that, I mean, I guess there's an economic structure question here around trade and industry policy and what, what should we be doing in the face of being a high-wage country but trying to maintain some sort of diversity of, of manufacturing of primary production? Yeah. No, it's, it's, again, another good question because it does come to the point where you do see the economies. I, I've spent a lot of time looking at international comparisons, which is a really important part of economics. I think sometimes we get too caught up in our local economy to ignore some of those other issues. I'll, I'll start addressing that question by looking at what the correlation between skills attainment and per capita incomes are. And again, it should be no surprise, I hope, to everybody listening, that um, the higher your skill level per capita, so the countries that have a lot of people going to university, finishing year 12, getting trade skills and all the rest of it, have higher incomes than people who finish school at year eight or year 10. Um, And that's 
because again, labour mobility allows them to charge higher wages effectively. So if you do start to price yourself out, well then of course the farmer won't employ those strawberry pickers for 50 bucks. They'll say, I can only afford to pay you $30. And while I don't want to be too much of a market or clear themselves, goodness, I'm not quite that bad. You do need a little bit of um, uh, support and a bit of policy rigidity to sort of help industry to continue going through the bad times as well as the good times. You know, the markets will sort of sort themselves out. And, okay, you do have an eye on what's happening in the global markets and the global economy, but at the end of the day, you hopefully have the wage structure that allows you to employ every Australian who wants a job, has a job, you know, whatever that natural rate and the Nehru for, for unemployment is, who knows? But I, I define it as you have everyone who wants a job has a job. And uh, we, we are still a long way from that right now. Let's talk about manufacturing for a sec. I, I find myself on the left of both parties sometimes and the right of both parties other times. And both parties want us to make things. And I, I understand the natural impulse to make stuff, right? Because it kind of feels like we should somehow. There's something so deeply primal in that idea that, well, of course, we should want to make stuff, right? We should have our own cars or our own whatevers. Um, on the other hand, to your point about markets taking care of stuff, Australia would eventually become an almost entirely services-based economy. That is own issues for uh, productivity growth, by the way, I think, which is a whole different question we probably won't get into. Um, but, you know, if, if we are to keep making stuff, you know, if we let markets do their own thing, everything gets made somewhere else and we service it here, and maybe that's okay, maybe it's not. Uh, plenty of people on, well, frankly, both sides of politics right now want us to make stuff. Is that is that an economic-based argument? Is that just a base politics thing of they need to be able to say that? Do they just believe that? Do we need to keep making stuff, I guess, is my question. I, I don't like the argument at all. Um, I think we should do the things that we're good at, be that services or goods. Um, and we're good at, well, just putting aside COVID, I know that's a big thing to put aside, but we're good at tourism. We're good at international tourism. We are good at banking and finance. You know, we've got a fabulous banking and finance sector that's wonderfully well-regulated. The higher incomes are feeding into things like health and aged care. Okay, there's issues that have got to be associated there. And you look at how the structure of the economy has changed over the last 30 or 40 years. Manufacturing has gone from something close to 20% of GDP to now being about 7%. And until COVID came along, we'd have 30 years without a recession. We had unemployment around 5%. It wasn't a bad time. And we've had this growth of services. And again, the, just the structure of the economy's changed. And you think about it, what we spend our money on, it's entertainment, it's Netflix, it's not, uh, and phones and technology as we're speaking. This is a service. Okay, I need to buy the computer and the microphone and all these other things, but it's really the service that's being provided by managing things. And that keeps the economy growing. You don't need to make a car to be economically successful if you're providing a service that people want to spend their money on, going out, entertainment, watching a movie. Okay, there's a bit of duty, or even, even making the movie, let alone watching it, you know. You're just getting actors to sort of jump up and down and say a few words and, you know, we pay them a lot of money to do it. Mate, we've agreed way too much so far, so I'm going to take you to the RBA because I know you wouldn't let me finish without asking you anyway. Yes. You and I have slightly different, well, very different views, not necessarily diametrically opposed. I reckon the RBA has done a, a pretty decent job recently in the sense that they have a couple of tools, really only one major tool, which has always been rates. You can kind of add bond buying to that. You can kind of throw the old Glenn Stevens jawbone in there as well if you want to kind of add a, sure. a, a third or you know, yes. a, a two and a half tools. Um, 
they have, you know, I liken it to them. They're flying a biplane while the while the federal government's got a, you know, a fighter jet with heads up displays and computers and a dozen different, you know, tools and everything else on, at their disposal. And to some degree, while you made the point earlier that the RBA has spent six or seven years with the inflation rate outside its target range, I wonder to some degree if they're saying, well, I only got one tool to fix it, and you guys over there have got the entire arsenal, and you're sitting on your backsides and not doing much or enough. We're kind of doing as much as we dare but we kind of don't dare go much further than that for fear of blowing the whole thing up. If we were, in, I guess my question, well, my, my view is if we're in charge of both policies, if you and I were in charge of both policies and it's together, we mightn't use rates, we might use everything else, but because we separate the institutions, the RBA, in my view, and you're the economist, not me, you're the, you're the ex-chief economist, by the way, so I, I'm, I'm a nobody here. Your answer carries more weight than mine. Um, if we were in charge of both, we'd say, leave rates where they are, let's use fiscal. And the fact we separate them out and then let each be the target of criticism means maybe we're giving the RBA too much, is, is my view, too much criticism, but now I'll give you the floor and let you, uh, let you respond unfettered. But they're not going to do it. The thing, the thing about fiscal policy is that I've been around long enough that they're not going to do it. So you're sitting there at the Reserve Bank at Martin Place in, in Sydney. You've got your monthly board meetings. You think, oh, and we've heard Phil Lowe say this, and even Glenn Stevens, if I recall correctly, we need to spend more money on infrastructure and all these other things that they've been going on about for, for many a long year. Not, um, the harsh reality is that the politicians are not going to use those fiscal levers to the extent that we economists... Sitting in our ivory tower, I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> but, you know, they're not going to do it. They've got an eye on politics and winning the election, whereas we've got an eye on running the economy. So for the Reserve Bank to say, oh, I wish they'd spend more money on infrastructure, is a bit like me shouting at the TV, you know, Carlton versus a Collingwood game. The umpires are so biased, you know. They're not going to listen <laughs> to me as yeah, much right, as right. they're biased and they're incompetent <laughs> and hopeless. They're not going to listen to me. So shouting at the government, you should do more on fiscal policy. You should be spending up big right now. You should be doing more is a bit like that analogy of shouting at the screen during a football game. And the Reserve Bank know that. And occasionally, and look, as we said before, occasionally there are bouts of economic reform from the federal government and they're terrific. We welcome them. We, you know, again, the job keeper program, while it had a few little wrinkles in it, you know, whatever, was generally a really good policy and was the right thing at a time when we didn't know what was happening. So there's examples there. So the Reserve Bank do that and they sort of say, well, um, we've got a cash rate and we'll just focus on the cash rate now. Up until the beginning of the GFC, they, the cash rate was, if I remember correctly, gosh, I've lost track of my... T- was about 0.75 or 1.5% it was in 2019, and they refused to cut it, despite the fact every quarter, oh, CPI, underlying CPI, 1.6, oh, 1.7, 1.4. No, 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 we're get, next move's going to be up. Goodness <laughs> me, I remember that conversation only too well. Hang on, it should be cut, cut, cut until you get the momentum in the economy to get that inflation target, knowing that fiscal policy, even though it should be endogenous to the decision-making process, is actually exogenous most of the time. And so you wish for the best from the policymakers here in Canberra, (laughs) but you expect reality to be mm, a few little sort of breadcrumbs thrown off the table from time to time. Let me challenge the orthodoxy then. Uh, is it as much as we all think or we all say and we all believe that 
Reserve Bank, Central Bank independence is, is sacrosanct. Is it given that conversation time to bring them back and say, you know what, Treasurer, whoever you are, Treasurer Chalmers, Treasurer Frydenberg, Treasurer whoever, you know what, it's not okay for you to keep kicking the, well, not even can down the road, the can across to Martin Place, which is where the RBA is based for those who don't yes. know. Is it, is it time to kind of, you know, re- rein that back in and say, yes, we don't want the politicians in charge of it, but the reality is the RBA is operating in a deeply political environment because they're dealing with the results of the politics even if, even if their paymasters aren't telling them what to do. Yeah, I've never been a fan of the, this independence story. Um, and, in fact, if you look at the RBA Act, gosh, look at that board, um, you can sort of see that the government does have the ability to haul the RBA over the coals and actually override them. They've never done it, and I suspect they never will. But, uh, look, and I think this is one of the things from uh, both the GFC that we chatted about a short while ago, but also what's happened in this last year or two with COVID is that the RBA and Treasury and Treasurer have been chatting a lot. They've been in the sort of crisis meetings together during the GFC when it was Glenn Stevens and Wayne Swan and, gosh, I can't remember who was Treasury Secretary back then. But, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the current climate with Stephen Kennedy, Treasury Secretary, you know, Phil Lowe and, and Frydenberg, they've, I, they've been on constant uh, contact what do we do? Because if I do this, you do that. How bad's the economy? They'd be hearing from overseas what's happening in global central banking world. They'd be discussing what the latest intelligence is on the economy. You know, don't forget Treasury get really up-to-date data on tax flows. So they arguably get more up-to-date information on how the economy is going <laughs> than anybody else. Yeah, right. they, they, they know virtually on, a, virtually on a daily basis how much revenue that's come in. And while it's sort of varied from day to day, they know that, for example, GST is going up. Why would that be the case? Because spending's strong, you know. So they can sort of back solve for the economy there. So RBA independence, no, no, it shouldn't be completely independent. They're part of managing the economy for you and me, for the punter out there. They're managing the economy for the betterment of Australian society, if you like. And when they make an error, you know, it hurts Australian society. So the fact that they can liaise with the Federal Treasury and the Treasurer and, if you like, sort of speak from the same page when it comes to mm-hmm. managing the economy, in bad times it's obvious, but also in good times. You know, let's let's hope that this time next year we have this conversation and think, gee, isn't it great that COVID's over? Looking forward to going on my holiday to Bali. There's um, you know, all these other wonderful things. Well, they're going to have to manage what will presumably be a tightening cycle in monetary policy and a repair to the budget. And they should be talking about that because if the RBA hikes the same time that the government tightens fiscal right. policy, bang, you actually hurt your economy. So that liaison is so important and I hope it continues. A rhetorical question, mate. Do governments ever tighten fiscal policy again? They let the automatic stabilisers do it <laughs> very rarely. In fact, you've, 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 I've done a bit of research on this, but I got really bored trying to find the answer, so I gave up. <laughs> when was the last time there was a hike in income tax scales? I went back to the early 70s. Now, we've had the odd levy for gun buybacks and milk and the Queensland floods or something. We had the odd levy and the Medicare levy sort of edged up a fraction over the years. But when was the last time we actually had a hike in income tax rates or the scales were adjusted up, not down? We never use uh, that to adjust income tax, by the way, so... 
fascinating. I, if you'd asked me, I would have thought I recalled one in the late Keating or early Howard years. But you've done the work; you've gone back that way. So obviously, I've gone back I'm to the mid seventies. Yep, you would know. You would know. Even Goff didn't do it. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and that's I saying something. Have to double check that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> all right, mate. At the beginning, we're, we're almost at the end. We're all running out of time. But a couple of quick ones. Uh, I talked about parachuting you into the treasurer's office earlier. Let's parachute you into the Reserve Bank governor's office instead for a week. Um, you've, you've obviously talked about the fact the RBA is still not in its target band. I guess the first question, is the target band really the right target? Because that, that determines the rest. And then if, once you answer that question for me, what do you do? Do you, do you say, you know what, this is not working, just cut hard? What, what, what do you do next? Yeah, it's generally served us well. The, the target's been there for close to 30 years and it served us well. Uh, what do we do because we're not in the target band and our forecast doesn't really have us going back there? Certainly the reality isn't has been disappointing. Um, you do go harder. You, you, well, you, know, you Gosh, negative. It means going negative, right? Negative yields, yeah. arguably. You ramp up your QE a bit and you make it very transparent while you're doing it. And you actually articulate your inflation target even louder. We are going to do this until inflation's at three and we're going to get have it at three percent for two years before we actually adjust it because we've got to catch up from the times it was below three. You'd go really hard. You'd arguably, I'd have to think about this a fraction more. Look at the Aussie dollar as a stimulatory measure. Do you intervene on the currency? I know it doesn't work terribly well. You know, here's the RBA selling ten billion in a scheme where there's at least that much turnover every few hours in the Aussie dollar. So yeah, right. you're, you're sort of um, yeah throwing. A, yeah, you know, you're being overwhelmed by global markets. But, you know, as we've seen from our friends across in New Zealand, you can jawbone a bit, you can sort of lean on it, you can do a few things to, to get the currency down. Nice, mate. A couple of quick questions to finish off. Modern monetary theory, yes or no? No, it, it, it doesn't work. You, you, uh, and again, we're getting back into politics. That, that's where it doesn't work. Look, in theory, as its name implies, it can work. If you just quarantine it to say... You know, we're going to um, write off $100 billion through uh, a particular scheme. That'll work. But then, of course, I suspect you'd get a politician saying, well, hang on, if it works <laughs> then, can't we do that for even good causes like healthcare funding or, yeah. you know, education funding? Worthy, worthy causes, but where do you, that's the problem with it. One-off, it works. To have it embedded into your fiscal policy structure leaves me really nervous. I like it. As a, I know you're an economist, not not necessarily a, a financial advisor or uh, or, or uh, assets guy, but Bitcoin. How, you view on Bitcoin as as an economist? No, again, it's it's a solution looking for a problem. I think it's um, <laughs> it's fascinating. Gosh, I, I, and I love the volatility of it. It's it's one of those I love looking at markets, and even though I'm not a markets person specifically, I have the my screens up and the markets red lights, green lights, flashing up and down all the time. Bitcoin this last little while has been absolutely fantastic to watch you, know, you watch the charts but it's and all the charts depends on the scales as you know better than anybody <laughs> but you look at some <laughs> of these scales there's a 10% move in you know a week um, the, the candle charts oh, gosh that's a huge change um, it, I don't know what it's trying to solve and even if it's widely accepted in some form or other it's always benchmark against your local currency so <laughs> that's how much is a bitcoin thing. one bitcoin still worth one bitcoin Correct, correct. How much is it worth in US dollars or Aussie dollars? Well, why would I buy a Bitcoin to undertake a transaction when I can just cut out the middle Bitcoin person and just buy <laughs> direct from whoever's selling their product? 
Yeah, there's a reason we don't price Big Macs in Australia down at the local the local Maccas, right? There's uh, by spring US dollars. Sorry, they're priced in, they're priced in Australian dollars for a very good reason. That's our our medium of exchange. Um, one one that might need a slight longer answer, but just to finish us off, you mentioned everyone who wants a job can get one, and the idea of you know setting policies correctly. Lots of talk at the moment. I've I've just for full disclosure, I've been tweeting as you and I tend to do a bit um, about the worth of trialing a universal basic income during this particular period of time. Other people have said, no, don't do it, do a jobs guarantee. Other people saying, don't do either, it's a terrible idea. That whole idea of, does a UBI work, does a jobs guarantee work? How do you, how do you, how do you solve for that part of the economy? Yeah, I, I, a jobs guarantee is better than a universal basic income because the universal basic income is so expensive. And as we've touched on with modern monetary theory, where's <laughs> the money coming from to fund it? It's hellishly expensive. If you want it at a level that provides a decent level of income support for the people who are adversely affected, you know, even though Gina Reinhart gets it as well. <laughs> um, if you want it to be targeting the people who really need it, it's got to be at a decent level. It can't just be even $10,000 a year is too little. And you do a bit of maths on that, wow, that's a big lot of money. So where's the money coming from to fund it? Unless you print the money. Um, so jobs guarantee is a better idea. And the difficulty there is the... I'll call it the red tape and administration on how to work out which jobs you're giving to people, the jobs guarantee. So you're never unemployed because we'll get you to you know, paint rocks white and dig a hole and fill it up again, all these sorts of cliches that are out there. Um, you'd like to think that there's enough, gosh, real jobs out there, but if there's a real job out there, they should be employed. This is the sort of... That's, and that's why I've had a jobs guarantee job, for exactly that reason. and pay you a proper wage with proper right, conditions, right. your 10% super guarantee, your four weeks leave, blah, blah, blah. All that sort of stuff is about, is a job. So I look at the employment situation and job for all is skills, but the other thing about it is you grow the economy so that the business sector is going to employ everybody. You grow the economy at a rapid, inverted commas I was doing there, <laughs> at a rapid pace <laughs> yep. so that every business is saying, gee, I'm, I'm, my business is doing well, I need to hire another three people, I need to hire mm-hmm. another ten, I need to hire another two, and you absorb unemployment that way. Mate, give, give me, give me th- 30 seconds free consulting from the Managing Director <laughs> of uh, Market Economics. Why could the U- UBI not work if you simply, say it's 20 grand a year, everybody, for everybody, if you tax the first $20,000 of earned income at 100%, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Uh, now, there's, there's obviously leakages at both ends, but wouldn't that do most of the job? If you said to everybody, the tax scars are 100% for the first UBI equivalent you earn, thereafter zero, and then back in the, on the usual progressive scale, could we not claw back 80, 90% of the overpayment that way? Well, not a, well, why don't you just give it to the money to the people who need it, like through Job Seeker and those sorts of schemes, and the other pension support and care payments mm-hmm. and these sorts of things? Well, because you, you take out the my answer is you take out the friction and you take uh, of of the in work, out of work, qualifying, not qualifying, applying, not applying. You take out the whole apparatus of the, the, the departments that have to do all that sort of stuff. Everyone gets, call it 20 grand for the sake of the exercise. Sure, sure. And then, and then you, you tax the first 20 grand of earned income at 100%. That way you, don't, you have no friction. If I lose my job today through COVID, then tomorrow morning I'm still getting my, my payment from the, from the government. I yeah. go back to work in a week's time and I get taxed at the same amount and it, it, it means I don't have any friction. Yeah. It doesn't throw people out of jobs yeah. or, or homes or anything else. Yeah, I get, uh, it's a good question. I'm wondering whether there's a disincentive to work. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're on if you're, on, a, if you're yeah. on this twenty grand a year and the first twenty yeah. grand's taxed, oh, God, you do all that work and you earn nineteen thousand. You think, well, why the hell did <laughs> yeah, I do okay. that? And a lot. And remember, to the other important part of the labour market is in, in you know, non-COVID normal times. Um, is that a lot? A lot of people just work a few hours a week 
Um, part-time employment's a really big part of the labour market now and casual employment, let alone gig employment, these sorts of things. So there's, there's a whole lot of little issues there that, look... It's not the worst idea I've ever heard of, but it's one that's really, it really just adds a layer of complexity to how you actually tackle the issue. I prefer skill, skill up your labour market, grow the economy really fast and give everybody a job that way. Mate, when I write the book on UBI, I want you to put your quote on the back of the, back of the dust jacket. It's not the worst idea I've ever heard, Stephen Kukulis. Will you do that for me? You're on, you're on. It's a deal. All right, deal. Stephen, thank you very much, mate, for being such a generous guest. Thank you for spending your time with us. If you want to hear more from Stephen, he presents the Fear and Greed podcast with Sean Almer once a week. So jump on your favourite podcast app and do that. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at The Kook. He is a fantastic follow. Well worth it. You'll learn some things. You'll agree, you'll disagree, uh, but you'll come out smarter and you'll have a bit of fun along the way. You can go to thekook.com as well, all Stephen's details there. If you're looking for a great speaker uh, for your event, I haven't had the pleasure, but you've heard Stephen be entertaining, interesting, and super, super educated and aware of what's going on. So if you want a great speaker, I should highly recommend Stephen. Mate, thanks again. appreciate your time. Thanks for being on The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. An absolute pleasure. So what did you think? I told you it would be good. Stephen Kukulis is a smart guy. It was a fun conversation and there's going to be plenty more of those, but the only way to find them after this one is to subscribe to The Good Oil Podcast. So jump on your podcast machine, look up The Good Oil with Scott Phillips and subscribe now. See you soon. Listener.